you've been out on this parish road for a while and uh, that old car of yours, it's, it's letting you down. Now you have to set off on foot. The crunching oyster shells under your feet, they give way to puddles and poison ivy and God knows what else out in those ditches. And you know it's a long hike to the next gas station. But what's that? see a light out past the fence line. It looks like Yapodna waving his lantern. He must be there to help you out, so you follow the light and you don't notice that you step right over an old sign for Outlandish Parish. All right, guys, welcome back to Outlandish Parish. I'm Alexis Bro here with my co-host Jonas Savant. And uh, we are here to talk to you today about, as opposed to the Rougarou, which was kind of the singular, almost specifically Cajun werewolf. Today, we're going to talk to you about something that is, is almost global, and that is the Fufole. Before we get into it too much, we're going to be talking about the Fufole, and we're going to be talking about that sort of phenomenon around the world and, and how it plays in contemporary Cajun culture. But before we get too far into it, uh, Jonas, what you've been up to, man? How's the, how's the book coming? It's coming well. Uh, so it's all edited and formatted, just drawing some drawings for this uh, illustri- non-illustrated version of my novel. Um, 22 drawings in total. I am currently on drawing 21 of 22 and very happy because I'm, I can see the finish line. It's almost there. <laughs> But yes, I'm very ready. Uh, hopefully it'll be out and available end of November, beginning of December. We nice. shall see, of course. Yeah, who knows? A lovely Christmas present. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a great story. You know, I hope everybody loves it. Oh, no, I can't wait. Yeah, it's fun. Anyway, how about you? What's going on? I am trying to also get a book out, though not until the spring. And I've got, a, uh, I've got somebody who's willing to very generously give me a... Uh, a good read, like a like a beta reader thing in January. So I've kind of got a deadline under my butt. So I had to tragically abandon, I won't say abandon, pause my NaNoWriMo project for this year and really dedicate like all my writing energies towards one last push revision pass on uh, my book that I'm trying to get out in the spring that I've been Very working nice. on for like four years. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, just push through it. That's what it's about. Just pushing oh, yeah. through it to the end and just focusing on that. And it's, It'll it'll be great. Being an author has way more to do with stubbornness than raw talent on any given day. Like just absolutely absolute persistence. Pig, and, yeah, pig-headed. Hell no, I'm not quitting stubbornness. That's one of the things I do like about our project about doing the outlandish pair stuff is that it lets me research much more in depth. Because when you're working with fiction, you only need to know what you need to know, right? Exactly. Like you it's can. So true. You can sit there and, and learn about the rigging on the ship, but if all you really need to know mm-hmm. is like about how tall it was, yeah. um, a lot of that stuff just kind of falls out of your head. But with the stuff that we've been researching for the show, I get to let myself just go all the way down the weird rabbit holes, right? Like I get to go play in the deep bupuri of Louisiana folklore, and uh, I freaking love it. And the stuff that we pulled up for the Fufole is not disappointing. This got weird. This got interesting. And uh, this definitely took some Will of the Wisp-led turns out on the research marshes that I wasn't really expecting. Mm-hmm. But I know you said when we were doing our pre-recording conversation, you said you've actually seen something that could be described as a will-o'-wisp. 
as a full full Yeah, absolutely. So early in the morning when the you know the moon was still out before the sun was up quite yet, just this weird purplish bluish violet aura of I guess swamp gas, some kind of bioluminescent air of sort, I guess. I'm not sure what you'd refer to it as, but yeah, saw it briefly, but it, you know, I was probably like eleven years old, so I was like more interested in <laughs> in the ducks that were about to fly overhead once it got light but it was still very interesting no part of what you just described doesn't sound scary like a bluish purple aura in the pre-dawn marsh i understand i understand how excited y'all get to go duck hunting in the morning but like that sounds like a setup for a john carpenter movie like no part of that doesn't <laughs> well, i'm sound sure horrifying. i was somewhat scared but i was also you know not about to paddle out of my blind after seeing that or nothing but <laughs> The Fufole is not going to stop me from bringing home the pool dose. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so unlike what I've read about the Fufole, this was more of like a stationary, almost just like flowing in the light breeze kind of thing, more so than a light that's going to lead you somewhere. But I guess if, if people don't have a mental concept of what we're talking about, the Fufole is the Cajun version of the Will of the Wisp. This is a creature, monster, cryptid, folklore object, however you want to classify it, that is literally global. There are stories about the Fufole that are almost all over the world. Almost every culture has some area that has stories about these little balls of light that float. They must float about shoulder height because you always hear stories about somebody holding them in a lantern. Mm -hmm. And they wisp, they waft and wave through the breeze and lead people astray and travel and glide along the water and scare the crap out of people on old railroad tracks. What I saw a lot whenever I was looking at people doing like swamp gas experiments and what you sound like you're describing kind of reminds me of whenever the gas plants are blasting the, the waste gas, right? Whenever you drive, oh, yeah. whenever you drive past any natural gas plant down in Louisiana and they're kind of everywhere. I tell my kids it's the eye of Sauron. It's just this one flaming beacon like up in the middle of the plant and that's the exhaust gas the waste gas i'm sure it varies plant by plant and it's legal don't worry uh well worry but it's still legal right. you know that's what what i'm seeing when i when i see people like lighting the swamp gas and stuff it kind of looks like that like it's more of a spurting flame than something that's kind of floating like a ball through the uh through the trees but it is something that happens everywhere and it's usually associated like south louisiana with swamps you know, it's kind of checkmark. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's swamps everywhere. Anywhere you have a river meeting an ocean, you're probably going to have some sort of... You're either going to have, like, a rock face <laughs> or you're going right. to have... Swamp um, or marsh. Yeah. Swamp or marsh. You know, that's the bogs and the fins and everything. But um, one of the silliest, most bizarre factoids I came across when digging up was that the word swamp was first written down in the general history of Virginia, New England, and the Summer Isles in 1624 by John Smith of Pocahontas infamy. So that guy, right, John Smith, honestly, he was a true. Like, I don't care. <laughs> Have whatever opinion on history you want. John Smith was not a great dude. He was the first person to ever write down the word swamp that we have in recorded history. So swamp before that, many said sump as a mid 15th century, Somp Marsh or Morass, also meaning a pit to collect water as a sump, right? So 
a marshes, oh, okay. all these things are swamp. Yeah, like you have a sump pump swamp. now. Yeah, right, exactly. And like with anything with language, you know, I didn't really think about this until I homeschooled my kids, but it was like all language first develops verbally and then is mm -hmm. eventually written down. I mean, look at how our slang, look at how True, our yeah. language shifts. <laughs> I love that they needed a word to describe. <laughs> there was no word yet to describe the swamp they faced, so they had to make up their own word for it. I mean, yeah, American American swamps, Virginia swamps. I mean, the, the swamps they're talking about in Virginia, not uninhabited, right? This was a place where people lived. This was a place where people existed. But to the European colonists that came over, this was like Big Mama Swamp, right? This wasn't the marsh bogs and fins of, of England and Ireland. This was like, holy crap, swamp. This was yeah. cypress tree swamp. This was Spanish yeah, moss swamp. This was a very forever, intimidating yeah. mass. And they were like, we need a new word for this. This is so much. We need a new word for it. And <laughs> yeah. swamp. There was no better word than it for, for it than swamp. But you do see the swamp associated with a lot of the stories of marsh lights, a lot of stories from around the world. They're going to be, I won't say usually, but in a lot of places where you do see these really, really developed folklore, you're going to find a whole story and it's going to be in a wetland. If you look at in the Bengali region and it's it, in northeastern India, like it kind of makes like a sharp turn and it's between uh, Bangladesh and West Bengal. That area is known to have a ghost light called the Alaya and it is a light phenomenon, but it is over the marshes and you see a very similar behavior in the Alea as with the Fufale. You're seeing a trickster spirit. You're seeing somebody, it's a little more, it's a little more evil, right? A little more PG-13. Well, I guess, I don't know what's T, that's 80s PG-13. People yeah. dying, I guess, would be TVMA now. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, things have shifted. The 80s PG-13 contemporary TVMA. Um, you know, some fishermen will die. It's definitely a slightly more malevolent, but for the most part, it is kind of a, a more trickstery sort of thing. But you hear stories about these all over. Uh, in Japanese folklore, they have um, the hitodama, and it literally means human soul. And there are all kinds of variations that I'm not going to try to pronounce of the hitodama. And they are almost exclusively associated with graveyards. And it's a, it's a very distinct concept of the hitodama being like these light, floating light phenomenon that are human souls playing around in the graveyards and america has a lot of you know the ghost lights in america are associated with graveyards as well yeah well what's interesting just a slightly off subject but mm. still on subject i just saw today that teslas are picking up human activity in graveyards and like predicting because their dashboards like show when there's a, a pedestrian in the area but they're picking uh -huh. up these pedestrians through graveyards that aren't there visibly <laughs> so it's like what are Teslas picking up? In if we accidentally wind up back at spiritualism through Teslas, that right. would be amazing, right? Like yeah. that, that, that whole like <laughs> spiritualist movement, ghost knocking. If if we get back to that sort of thing through the use of electronic cars and like, that, right. that, dude, the world is always so much stranger than we ever predicted to be. Absolutely. Although way to <laughs> way to overclock your sensitivity. They're so worried about hitting anybody that they're even they're testing for souls. There's a soul detection in the Tesla right. now. <laughs> yes. To heck with the pedestrians. We're not even hitting the poltergeists. Yeah. Like or even Slimer legal. is safe on the streets of New York. Yeah, their their legal <laughs> department made them do that. I'm sure. <laughs>
oh. some sort of Hellboy uh, reliquary in the dash of each one secretly. Yeah. Like, that is really funny. Cemeteries are going to be known for like crazy amounts of paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. I, I want the Tesla thing to be real, but I also know that there were people that were hacking like old playstations or something that you could like it was like a body detect thing and they were using that that was kind of another little trend with uh ghost oh. hunting for a hot minute there so you do see a few that aren't necessarily associated with human souls again in japan in japan they have the uh the kitsune which mm -hmm. are the the fox spirits they're pretty popular um things like you know yasha and uh good lord just all all the anime just so much anime with with kitsune shout out my friend brett kitsune ninja when two kitsune come together, they don't make another kitsune. They actually make a fox fire, a kitsune bee, which is another one of these spherical ball phenomenon. But that's one of the few that isn't really associated with a, a human spirit. It's, it's its own thing, right? It's not, a, it's not a human soul. It's not a dead soul. It's not a neglected soul. It is this yokai that is a kitsune bee. And I'll have notes on all this stuff in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, I've not heard of that. I'm so I'm familiar with Kitsune, but not Kitsune. I I don't know the lore around it. I've only ever seen it. I, I mean, like, it's gonna yeah. if anything with Japan, there's gonna be like nine thousand references, and then mm -hmm. you have to figure out which ones are works of fiction, which ones are works of folklore, which yeah, ones are just really really all that, yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> it no. gets thick. Researching yeah. anything in Japan, like um, you hear the Onibi, Onibi. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, and it's another sort of ghost light like they have several different versions but the onibi can be either um a human or an animal spirit you know you're seeing a lot of different variations on the same theme in the japanese uh interpretation of the fufole or the will of the wisp i know in in mexican spanish culture right it gets a little it's a little squishy there which which came from uh which there are bruja lights right witch lights mm -hmm. And you'll see those are usually presented as floating over treasure. You know, if you see one of these things out in Mexico, out in the part of America that, you, that used to be Mexico, right? Like that sort of Western mm -hmm. uh, Mexican region, it would be something that would be indicative of a place to dig for treasure, not necessarily something that's going to guide you somewhere. It would be more of, it sounds like it's more of a stationary light. Sometimes you hear stories about it guiding you to the treasure, but usually it's just kind of hovering over a spot where you should dig. What's interesting about that is that it's a dry place as opposed to the marshy wetlands that we're seeing these lights in traditionally or more, you know, widespread, I guess. But big dry areas, and we kind of talked about this earlier, could be more electromagnetic phenomenon maybe in that area, right? Something to do with the magnetosphere or ionosphere disturbances, kind of like the northern lights and the, the southern lights, the aurora borealis. Like some sort of electromagnetic phenomenon? Yeah, so maybe. I mean, really can't be March gas, you know, in northern Mexico, but... Yeah, I mean, you look at stuff like the Min Min lights in Australia, mm -hmm. then you're looking at a description of something that was not just in a dry area, but also in, like, they're talking about them being bright enough to illuminate the ground underneath them. You're talking about people, the light going away and then coming back several times that the lights were able to keep up with them in pace when they were driving. And so you're almost looking at like micro UFOs. Like that's, that's what the Min Min lights right. remind me of. It's like, um, remember uh, batteries not included, the little baby robots? Yeah, of course. <laughs> cutest, <laughs> cutest baby robots ever. Cutest baby robots. I wanted that movie to be better than it was. But I mean, it was good. It was, you know. 
Hold no up. I watched to, it. I still no, cry. No, no I still it, it was sad, but I wanted it to be like. You want you want a gritty reboot of, of uh, batteries not included? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, the designs on those robots were just so cool. Like I don't know, from my transformer raised, you know, imagination. But that's what <laughs> but that's what the Min Min lights sound like. Is is honestly yeah. like the Min Min lights sound almost more. I I'm hesitant to put them in this group, except that they if we are going to kind of look at floating balls of light as mm-hmm. as on tout la, you know the whole thing, then. Yeah, it it sounds more like baby UFOs, but mm-hmm. very different description from the stuff that you're seeing in other areas. But it is one of those sightings that are kind of definitely not present in a marshy area. And same thing with a lot of the Japanese stuff. You know, you're talking about places where there is natural decomposition. Natural decomposition is not exclusive to the marsh. But, you know, these stories are getting a little bit wider than the sort of narrow parameters. Now, if we jump over to Europe, you've got some really, really interesting traditions. A lot of the traditions that because we are Western European descent, because we are white, Anglo-Saxon, Caucasian, European descent, Celtic, French, whatever, it gets uh, complicated with with Cajun family trees. You're finding a lot of the stories that will just kind of be promoted by popular culture. So in uh, Welsh folklore, because the Welsh got to be different, their fairy light is held by a puka. Right. And it, it's a it's a small goblin, kind of a trickster character that holds up a light and it intentionally leads you on a merry chase through the Devon and Cornwall countrysides. One of my favorite names for a Will of the Wisp or a Fufole is the Hinky Punk. And that's from this area too. <laughs> and I just love the name Hinky Punk. That sounds <laughs> like it's like that's a dude with a mohawk name. and some overalls. Like a hinky punk would be like <laughs> Yeah. You're going like to have to make who... a, a character, <laughs> a hinky punk character. Sort. I'm telling you, like a mohawk, but then like shrimp boots. And like... <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Just, I'm picturing them. But in that area, from that sort of Celtic European area, you're also going to get the two most popular versions, which is the Will-O-The-Wisp and the Jack-O-Lantern. Mm-hmm. Do you know the stories about the Jack-O-Lantern? Uh, somewhat. So Jack and Will, I know Will-O-Wisp is from a guy named Will and jack o is from a guy named Jack. Both make a deal with the devil, right? And then I'll let you go. I know you know the story better than I do. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, the stories are really similar and it's, it's yeah. two of those stories that like you'll hear echoes of it even in like the Deathly Hollows and Harry Potter and you'll hear mm-hmm. it. It's one of those stories that's just been varied and varied and varied. And basically... This dude, whether his name was Will or Jack, depends on where you came from, he winds up getting into a betting contest with the devil. And he winds up basically tricking the devil into saying that he wouldn't die, that the devil couldn't claim his soul, that he would be free for usually it's a year, sometimes it's, you know, three years, depending on the story. And Jack just keeps making the devil some misad. He messes him up. He tricks him over and over and over again until the devil is just like had it with him. You know, he doesn't want him anymore. He, he leaves him alone. But he had granted that he wouldn't die. So eventually he just gets tired. He tries to go to heaven. Heaven turns him away. He tries to go to hell just to have somewhere to be. And then the devil turns him away too. And if it's Will, he gets a wisp, which is a bundle of sticks with a flame on the end. And if it's Jack, he gets a coal from the fires of hell. And he's given either given a lantern or in some stories, which is the origin of the, the hollowed-out pumpkin, which was originally a hollowed-out turnip, he would put it in a, some sort of vegetable, 
uh, usually a turnip initially, and that would be his, his light to see him through the world. And both of those stories, not very happy stories, but, you know, now our kids get candy to put in those little pumpkins, so it works. But he was, like, even once he did that, he was still a true. Like, whenever he was finally turned away, he used that coal to lure people out into the marsh to their deaths. Like, even once he had been turned away from heaven or hell, he didn't become a better person. He was still, like, kind of a, an, an asshole. And so, you know, this is where you see that where it's, it is that, that developed story of how it came to be. But then also he's continuing his mischievous and honestly, he sounds a lot more mean practices. You know, he right. sounds a lot meaner than our than our concept of, of the more fruitful spiteful life. than yeah, yeah. Than anything. Like, yeah. If I can't go to heaven or hell, then you're gonna die. And that's that's for you know marketing reasons. Uh, the very right. the most popular story, at least from the the iconography, and that's kind of the story that whenever you you know people are looking for their their Halloween flavor story, they're like, do you know the true story of Jack O' Lantern? And so it's been shared even more and more and more now that we've got the digital media coming out because it's a, it's a story that's interesting. And for all that, if you go looking for it, it's easy to find. It's still a story that not everybody knows. Now, a couple of other European traditions that we found, um, Germans were really funny. They were, uh, they were drunks on their way home. And like, that's what they were. It was, it was um, the will of the wisp would go after drunk people and they would have burned feet. Like they would, uh. their feet themselves would actually be like singed and stuff whenever they got home and sobered up. They had something to do with like property lines. That one didn't really get because that one was so specific. It was like That's this very shot. specific property line that had been moved, and the people who moved that property line were doomed to be fufole, to be <laughs> will the wisps forever. I'm like, that seems a little harsh, right? Like yeah. property law, property law as a foundation for folklore is a little, it's a little. That sounds little... <laughs> like a story from one specific family who <laughs> who hates another specific family. <laughs> and they just had enough kids that their story outstoried all the other stories. Yes, um, exactly. it was that one was really weird because it seemed the most specific. <laughs> mm -hmm. Kind of strange. <laughs> These fourteen guys who messed up this flags <laughs> are the ones who are the fufu like. <laughs> but if you get into like, I know my family's from like the northern, what's sometimes France, sometimes Belgium, depending on the year. Mm -hmm. um, and if you get into that area and going up into the more northern European countries you will see a belief that we're going to find very familiar, which is the idea of these spheres of light being the souls of unbaptized children, specifically unbaptized children. And one variation that I found from there that was not in any of the records from Louisiana that I found, but it was that the unbaptized children were actually like the reason they were near the water is that they were leading people to the water to be baptized. So the children's spirits were these fire spirits but they were also like i'm not sure if they were trying to get themselves baptized or if they were just trying to like make sure everybody was baptized and maybe some people drowned i'm not really sure what their <laughs> modus operandi was but i thought that was an interesting variation yeah. was that uh -huh. they were trying to um but if you look at if you look at that idea like that's the cajun that's the acadian that's that's the louisiana idea of what the fufole is, is that it is the, the soul of an unbaptized baby. Mm -hmm. Although I found one, well, I, I went to this really good book talk where um, Dr. Nathan Rabelais talked about in Avoyles Parish, the fufole, but pronounced fifole. First of all, that they're not the same because he said the fifole, and this was a predominantly Creole distinction. Now, I use the term Creole to indicate 
a certain amount of African heritage. That's my definition. I don't expect anybody else to share that definition. It gets complicated mm -hmm. because it was a legal classification, and now it's more of a cultural classification. But I think of in Louisiana when you have a an African ancestry and an African traditional presence, I think of those as more the Creoles. So that's how I'm going to use it. Mm -hmm. Anybody want to start beef with me? Go ahead. I'm I'm willing to debate, but you can go on Facebook and find nine thousand arguments between very uh, right. articulate people about Creole versus. Well, Cajun. Creole is a, a also a, a language in West Africa, so and you yeah, know, which is where Creole somewhat is originated anyway. So anyway, yeah, um, yeah, but I also there, agree on the definition. Yeah, to a certain it's it's complicated, <laughs> right? Yeah, but, um, I have a this... book on the language. Yeah, oh, cool. It's interesting. Yeah, very cool. But the Creole variation was not a uh, unbaptized baby. It was actually a person who was a fire spirit who was wearing a human skin. And uh -huh. they were a vampire, mm -hmm. and they could take their skin off and turn into, like, basically release the fifole within. And then the fifole would go and was kind of a vampiric spirit. It wasn't leading yeah. anybody astray. It was a predator. It was something that would harm people and... Yeah. Um, it was, I, I did as much research as I could with that without going to the original French, which Dr. Rabelais was able to do. It's an excellent book if anybody wants to, um, to find so out more from a nerdy, a very, a very beautifully nerdy perspective. Um, it's a great resource. Yeah. What I was going to say when I was a kid, uh, one, uh, another kid once told me that his family was fifoles, that they would take their skins off at night and be, you know, glowing orbs. I don't think he said like his... glowing orbs, but he he said they're lights inside and the yeah. Um it's he so did weird. tell me this. Yeah, that's so weird. I know. And like Especially this conversation cause... kinda unlocked that memory for me, but it's yeah, <laughs> very interesting. Like I Okay, I didn't so think wait, so a long time, but Doc, yeah. Dr. Robelay yeah. said he had only really heard it in the Creole communities. And then you're saying that and, and Well, so and... this kid might have heard it from his parents tell it to somebody as like you know i don't know or grandparents i'm not sure yeah. and just said and just adopted it as his own thing maybe i was probably below 10 years old when he told me that so i barely remember it but like i yeah, do but remember that means he definitely didn't google it right no he definitely <laughs> did this was in you know in the 80s or early 90s something like that um that's but, interesting because he was very yeah. specific and in the book he's very specific that this felt mm -hmm. like a, a sort of a, a highly localized story. I mean this is this is why yeah. we do this. You know, it's it's the right. way that the stories travel, it's the the presentation of them. And I mean, yeah, if I heard some crazy story about these people that, you know, could uh could take their skin off and be glowing balls of light, bro. I might have, I probably would, that probably would have made an impression too. Yeah, that, that one, because <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't know if it was true or if it was like, you know, <laughs> if he was just saying it to scare me because he, you know, I, don't, I have no idea. Prove yeah. it, prove it. He's prove got a little yeah, zipper, yeah. zipper under his chin, next thing you know. Yeah, I didn't want to prove it though, I was little. <laughs> yeah. But in, in Cajun culture, with, with that exception, with like Dr. Robilly's one person he talked to in Yapadna, the the fufule is usually considered an unbaptized soul that is wandering the world in this concept of limbo, which is uh, very prevalent, not unique to Catholic faith, but very prevalent in Catholic faith. The fufule are are fairly simple characters, right? The Rougarou had all kinds of rules, all kinds of different classifications and different uh, idiosyncrasies, whereas the fufule is a trickster, right? It's it's mischievous. It's not particularly mean. I've heard a lot of contemporary sightings. You can read about them in swapping stories. You can find them online. 
but it's usually more of an observed phenomenon. It's not usually a terribly complicated interaction. And like they have some rules, uh, they can't cross water, right? And then what's the thing? They have something with iron. Iron, yeah. Would you stab a knife into the ground and or use a needle to confuse them into passing through the needle's eye? And those aren't complicated things. If you if you're going out in the woods for a while, you will probably have a knife, and you mm -hmm. might have a needle with you because you know if if you have to do some sort of field dressing or if you have something in your hunting pack or fishing pack you know my grandpa mm -hmm. used to carry a needle in his fishing pack because it was easier for him to thread his fishing lines he'd thread uh, the he'd, that makes sense. he'd run it through the fishing hook so these weren't things that were complicated rituals these weren't complicated interactions and it is it is kind of like a beautifully innocent sort of simple idea of these are the lost souls they can't find their way and in catholic tradition i know that you would usually pray for souls in purgatory you know, we, we used to always have to pray for people to be released. But whenever I was little, we would always kind of spare a prayer whenever it was rosary time. I went to eight years of Catholic school. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not. I know it's fine, kind of hard to believe. That is kind of hard to believe, actually. I was an altar girl. I, I even, wow. I was, they let me on the altar and everything. I was into it. I, I like being Catholic. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, 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 I was a raised whole... Catholic too, actually. It's a pretty, like, if you, if you have fangirl tendencies, Catholicism is a good faith because you got mm -hmm. all the merch, you got the cool goody <laughs> guys, you got the whole, the whole cast of characters. Um, right. Yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Oh, no. When Catholic school girls get together, like, we have to, who is your favorite saint? It's a whole thing. Yeah, but in that wow. context, we used to pray for the souls of the people in purgatory, like even, you know, into the 80s and 90s when I was in school. And so it's, it's the idea of the fufule as being your departed who are close. You know, this is a time from when families would lose, you know, what, sometimes half their kids before they made it to 12. Right, yeah. You know, you go into any of our old cemeteries, there's a lot of little, lot of little tombs. A lot of people yeah. where... Because if you aren't baptized, you couldn't be necessarily interred. They used to do a thing where they would stick them in with a, another family member, or they would tuck, like if a baby was stillborn or something and had never been baptized. That's complicated, you know, because mm -hmm. if you're not baptized, then you're born with the stain of original sin. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, so they couldn't necessarily, I mean, there was compassion. There was, there was understanding. This was a religious community, you know. There were there were compensations. They would they would tuck the the body in with the you know the baby's body in with a recently departed adult and that person. I think they did that on call the midwife. You mm -hmm. know, it was kind of a tradition that that they would find a way to get the baby interred. But from a spiritual concept, that child is now doomed. That child is is lost. And the idea of the fufule as a way to think that maybe your child's soul is still nearby. You know, maybe it was something of a comfort. Maybe that's right. why it is this sort of uncomplicated little mischievous child spirit wandering around. Hmm. That's an interesting and somewhat kind of comforting, you know, for those people <laughs> too. Yeah. It, in a yeah. Way. It's, if, I mean, I, 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 God forbid, I, I can't imagine what my great grandparents and, and back and back and back went through, but it was, it was a harsh reality of life back then that you were probably going to mm -hmm. lose a child. And, yeah. you know, these stories developed as a way of comfort. And it's interesting that these stories are so universal, and it's interesting that the places that they are are almost more universal than 
the scientific explanations for it. Because when you look at pivoting away from, from the mythology of it, when you look at the idea of what the fufule is, if we do classify it as swamp gas and marsh gas, it gets a little complicated because there's this whole justification for it. There's this whole backstory. There's developed lore. There's a, a causation. There's, there's a, a because and so sort of aspect of it. This, this thing exists because they were unbaptized souls, and so they wonder the world. There's a continuity of story, right? A narrative that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I started looking for, instead of just looking up, um, you know, will of the wisp variations or trying to find stories that from from starting from the story, I started looking from the topography. So I started looking up places that are swampy, that are marshy, and seeing what the lore was there. And I mean, yes, probably the first thing I think about whenever I hear swamp is the Atchafalaya, but the next is Florida. And you know what doesn't have a profoundly developed folklore about little floating lights over the marsh in the swamp is Frickin' Florida. Frickin' Florida. Frickin' Florida. Florida man <laughs> stole all the fufoles. Um <laughs> But it's Yeah, you're not you're not finding them. You're finding stories about ghost lights, right? This is kind of the same idea of like this sort of oh, we saw a light, it's probably a dead spirit, but like not really developing the story as much beyond that. And I'm not finding it in Florida. I'm not finding it in coastal Texas, which Folklore doesn't go, oh, well, there's Texas. We got to stay on this side. We can't go over to that Louisiana <laughs> side. We got to, nope, 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 boy. Somebody's going to put a line there someday. We got to stay right here, right, right in the great state of Texas, right? That's not how folklore works, um, especially when you're doing with stuff that goes so far back. So I'm not finding a lot of stories in coastal Texas. I'm not finding a lot of stories in Florida. I'm not even necessarily finding a whole lot of stories, uh, even in Virginia, right? The place where the word swamp came to be. I'm finding stories about like ghost lights and stuff, and there are reports of the lights. They don't have them with the frequency that have justified these stories that have developed. And I, I think that's really interesting. I'm not really sure. You can't prove a negative. You can't extrapolate from a negative. And I might be wrong, right? If anybody out there has stories, oh, there's the story of the, the Seminole something from Florida, by all means, email it to me, um, outlandishparish at gmail.com. I want to hear. I want to do better research. But... I went, I went all the way up the eastern seaboard, and the only place I eventually found something that sounded close to the behavior of a fufule or a will-o'-the-wisp was in the Abenaki. They have a marsh spirit called the, I'm going to do my best, Chibaisqueda. But the Abenaki, you know where they are? They are in the northeastern woodlands right up there with the Mi'kmaq and the Acadians. Full so circle. we're looking... Yeah, we're looking at another example of the stories of Europe and the stories of the indigenous First Nations blending together in that 200 years in Acadie. And you can see that line. Now, the Mi'kmaq do not have this tradition, but the Abenaki were in proximity. So this is another case of these stories just living close by each other. And I, I just keep coming back to how hard it was to find some of that developed lore in places that have all of the environmental aspects that should be associated with something like the Fufole. 
it hit me different, right? Like I came into this thinking like, oh, it's all swamp gas, swamp gas, swamp gas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, from Alan Hynek and Blue Book all the way down to now, it's all swamp gas. And then when I started looking at this and really looking at it and looking at the descriptions and it was like, huh, um, that's not, that's not what I saw. Because like you said, you've seen something, but I went online and watched a whole bunch of very well-intentioned sciencey folk going out into the marsh, going out into the swamp, putting a stick down in the water. And you can, go, you can do this. You Google it. There's tons of YouTube videos. And they'll take a stick and stick it down into bupuri. Now, bupuri literally means rotten mud. It's the mush, right? It's that. Right. It's the stuff that eats your boots. And so, it's, <laughs> it's the, that the rotten mud. Stuff, yeah. <laughs> That stinks. So are they trying to release methane gas by yeah, the they're stick stirring in? it yeah. up. They put the stick in. They're stirring up the methane gas, and then they have to usually have what looks like an umbrella or a bowl. There are various sizes. You're going to see. I saw this experiment done. Everything from a, a what looked like a decent sized salad bowl all the way up to like um, almost like an upside down boat to concentrate the gas and and collect it and then release it and set it on fire. And this is you know it's something that people encourage their kids to do mm-hmm. and it's an easily reproducible experiment but here's the thing none of what they did looked like what's described in these stories interesting uh, also like i i'm can say with fair certainty that what i did see was not on fire it was more of like a a fog of sorts like whenever you see a um like a gas puddle mm-hmm. or you know like somebody's got some gas out by the boat like or diesel or something, and you see that sort of fume vapor across the top. That's kind of what I imagined. Mm-hmm. Right. Or like whenever a fire is going really, really good. They, shoot, they show this in movies a lot. Whenever like you kind of film through a fire or look through a fire, and you have that sort of wavery, almost texture to the air. Right, yeah. Um, but So what you're saying is what you saw was not on fire, and what these people no. are producing was very definitely on fire. Like it looked uh-huh. like... like like those uh, those gas torches, right? Like the Eye of Sauron and all the gas plants. Right. Interesting. And uh, one of my favorites was these people, probably from up where you are, setting the methane bubbles under the ice on fire. That looked like fun. Mm. That looked like a fun night out with the family. I think you should I've bundle not seen the baby that. up. You didn't see that? Oh, man. I'm going to have to no, send you the I'm, link. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. It's, it's these methane bubbles that will concentrate under the ice. And they kind of explained how you could tell, like, the you would see a bubble under the ice. Like you could tell where there was some trapped gas under this mm-hmm. lake. And it's this whole family and they are wearing all of their clothes. Cause it looks so freaking cold and they've got a pickaxe and a blowtorch, and they are having the time of their freaking lives with a spotlight, just like hitting on top of the bubble. And then like the other, you could tell this is like teenage siblings or something or cousins. And like one of them's got the blowtorch and a whole lot of trust and one of them's got the pickaxe and they're trying to time it so that they're setting the stream of gas on fire like as soon as it like they make the hole and then as soon as the gas starts coming out the other person comes in with a blowtorch. Oh wow. And some of those <laughs> burned for a while. Like some of those pockets did, you know, the hole was small enough, you know, the 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 same thing with the the big science experiments. There were some that incorporated like a valve where they were really able to control the gas release. And some of those oh, did wow. burn for a minute, but none of them left the surface. Hmm. None oh, of them so burning right on the surface. Yeah, I see. What you're burning saying. right on the surface, or doing that sort of like, like flare up and then gone thing, but nothing that would have traveled. And that seems to me like kind of a, a very fundamental part of this. 
is that if you're going to have a light that's going to guide you somewhere, then that light needs to be traveling, right? Right, yeah, for sure. And no swamp gas that I've seen has traveled. Interesting. So Again, the, with the electromagnetic thing, though, like yeah, you've seen maybe the it's all, auras maybe it's all of, of my, yeah, you've seen the auras of like uh, you know the. Again, Aurora Borealis and how it travels throughout the sky, even if you haven't seen it in real life in pictures or in, you know, video. So maybe it's like a small version of that in certain areas. And that's why it's so hard to define because of those. I so want that to be true. Somebody out there with a big PhD of something, because the idea of little dead baby spirits floating all around is way creepier than the idea of the Aurora Borealis having micro expressions in the swamps. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. <laughs> I, I, some, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to believe, but at the same time, sometimes believing makes the outside a little creepy. And this is one of the ones. Yeah, I was. Uh, as I, the more research I did on the scientific aspects of it, the less the scientific explanation seemed to fit the narrative. And that, that just, I mean, I'm not making any declarations here, but you know, it just sits a little funny on me. Maybe it's because I'm an author. Maybe I demand that my reality a little more uh, ground underneath it or my, my narrative needs to make sense. But yeah, it's it's just it just strikes me a little funny. And in in Cajun traditions, you know, we, we have a beautiful story about it. We have a wonderful place in our culture that it sits, you know, and, and a lot of people are saying that they're seeing it less and less. You know, they're having fewer sightings each year. There's fewer stories being uh, being told about the Fufole. So I don't know, maybe it, maybe it is something that the electromagnetic spheres around Louisiana are shifting. Maybe it's some geological phenomenon that we'll never explain. There's other ghost lights and stuff around the state. We have the Crossit lights up in Arkansas. We have the, the lights over in Gonzales. And also not Swampland, for those of you familiar with the... Also not Swampland. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like on Roddy Road between Bayou Narcisse and uh, Cant Road uh, over near St. Mark's Catholic Church. And it used to be a really remote road, and people would see otherworldly apparitions. Now, this one's kind of associated with a ghost. And um, when we talk about ghost lights, usually it's something where, you know, you're, you're getting into contemporary cryptid and creepypasta area. You're talking about, like local ghost stories you're talking about you know the hitchhiking girl the woman in white we're kind of getting into those urban legend sort of aspects of it when we get into ghost lights because they are a phenomenon that you see everywhere and a phenomenon that is not necessarily tied to a marshy area or a cemetery so the fufole is very very close to our hearts you know for previous generations they were a comfort they were a they were a warning. They were a comfort. They were this mischievous little beautiful spirit, but they weren't necessarily something to be really afraid of. And then as our culture has shifted a little further away from our stories, I was surprised by how many people are still saying that they have seen Fufole out in the marsh, you know, but all of them saying you see them less now, which was another weird thing. Is that less people in the marsh or less marsh to be seen? Well, like the guy, there was one guy I talked to at at, uh, at Rugaru Fest, and he said uh, he used to see them every couple of months, and now he sees them every couple of years. Mm. So same guy, same patch of marsh from what he was saying. He's from over near Morgan City. Okay. And, but saying specifically he used to see them more, and I'm also wondering maybe it's because maybe it's there's less dirt, right? Maybe that subsidence is changing the alchemy 
going on under the uh, under the bupuri, under the grass. Maybe there's that that might be another potentially scientific aspect of it is that literally the dirt under our feet's shifting. Maybe, yeah, for sure. The world is constantly changing and evolving. But I don't know. I have a feeling that for as long as there are uh, Cajuns living out in the marshes and the bayous of Louisiana, I have a feeling we're going to be seeing some fufole. <laughs> I hope so. And we definitely have them dancing all over out here in Outlandish Parish. That's another episode of Outlandish Parish. So uh, what do we have coming up next month? We're going to be doing December. Oh, my God, yeah, Christmas. December. It's almost here. <laughs> oh, man, that was oh. a quick year. It went by quick. Right? Exciting, right? though. I, I love oh the holidays. God. It's always fun. And I do. Yeah. I love the holidays, and um, I love our traditions. And for those of you out there, our next episode is actually going to be on holiday traditions, on Christmas traditions, on your families, hopefully holiday traditions. Um, mm -hmm. Now I say Christmas because let's face it, Cajun culture, predominantly Catholic, South Louisiana, predominantly Christian. Uh, if you've got some holiday tradition that doesn't necessarily follow under that yeah, classification, we'd like yeah, we'd like to hear any of them. Uh, I know my family, they used to be visited like by La Christian and then my grandpa said something about a mouse. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> There's a mouse that brought you Christmas presents. Huh. This was before shoes were really popular. So, you know, this is way back in the day. This is like the 1920s. <laughs> before um, shoes were popular. I love I that. I mean, look, all those cliches about like they all shared the same pair of shoes. That's not exactly. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I walked in Piggly Wiggly barefoot when I was little. So. Yeah, bro. But it was clay moths back then <laughs> in Chopin. <laughs> Oh, man. Whether you're going to Piggly Wiggly or Schwegman's or wherever you're going for Christmas, yeah. uh, shoot us an email at outlandishparish at gmail.com or maybe post it up on our Facebook group for Outlandish Parish and let us know what your holiday traditions are. Uh, bonus points if you can give us something like a narrative or a story. Maybe we can get a little recipe club going on the Facebook oh, page. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Right. What are, oh. your, what are your Christmas recipes? We're going to start a civil war on Facebook if we, if we oh, do that. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, we could put it in, maybe we could put it on maybe what show us what you cook and share show us I what you cook and share are you part oh, yeah. of that on facebook i'm, I'm not, not but i'm gonna have to I'm, look at it. follow it i, I never participate <laughs> but I, I might need to we might need to soon <laughs> but yeah we can we can have the outlandish parish uh holiday cooking board and uh get all some good cajun and, and uh creole louisiana recipes for y'all up there but let us know what y'all do do y'all do the revion do y'all go to the fire the bonfires up on the levee and if any of the things that we said sound interesting, then uh, tune into next month's episode. And that's what we're going to be talking about is holiday and uh, probably mostly Christmas traditions from the Bayou State. Nice. And thank you all for listening. That was fun. Merci. Merci. Merci.